The actions of the Trump presidency revealed the dishonorable fact of the president's betrayal of his oath of office, betrayal of our national security, and betrayal of the integrity of our elections. I'm announcing the House of Representatives moving forward with an official impeachment inquiry. The president must be held accountable. No one is above the law. I'm Ezra Klein, and this is Impeachment Explained. Welcome to Impeachment Explained. Uh, Every week we're going to do two things on this show. One, we're going to check in with what news actually mattered that week, what that happened that week is actually going to show up potentially in the impeachment trial. And then we're going to look at something deeper about the impeachment process, power, the geopolitical context uh, that is going to shape what we're going to see. So this week, uh, we're going to start with three things that happened this week that I think we're going to remember for quite a while. One is uh, acting Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney's confession of a quid pro quo, then it's very strange attempt to walk that back, but but quite a remarkable moment. Gordon Sondland, the ambassador to the EU's statement and, and hearing, which... Again, I think I would file under the rubric of confessions that are quite remarkable. And then the Trump administration's decision to host a G7 at the Trump resort in Doral, which I think might have just added another article of impeachment to what the House is going to uh, try to investigate. Um, And then we're going to talk about the four words that are going to shape impeachment, high crimes and misdemeanors. But joining me to to talk about the news stories this week, my colleague and friend, Matt Iglesias. Matt Iglesias of the Weeds, thank you for coming to help break this down. Great to be here. So- Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney gave a press conference this week, and ABC's John Carl asked him a question. And what followed was one of the most remarkable on-air confessions I have I've ever heard. Let, let's hear a clip from it. Be clear, what you just described is a quid pro quo. It is funding will not flow unless the investigation into the into the Democratic server uh happened as well we we do we do that all the time with foreign policy we were holding up money at the same time for uh what was it the northern triangle com- countries we we're holding up aid at the northern triangle countries so that they uh, so that they would change their policies on immigration this speaks to an important point because i heard this yesterday and i can never remember the gentleman who tested was mckinney the guy is that his name for me? i don't, don't know him. he testified yesterday and if you believe the news reports okay because we've not seen any transcripts of this the only transcript i've seen was Sondland's testimony morning this morning if you read the news reports and you believe them what did mckinney say yesterday well mckinney said yesterday that he was really upset with the political influence in foreign policy that was one of the reasons he was so upset about this and i have news for everybody Get over it. So, Matt, the, the thing happening there is he's saying we do quid pro quos in foreign policy all the time. So there's no problem that we did one here, too. What do you think of that argument? I mean, of course, you do quid pro quos in diplomacy all the time, right? That's like, you know, it's it's an exchange between countries. The key point, though, is that we're in an exchange here in which the United States is doing policy for Ukraine. And in exchange, Donald Trump wants personal political favors, right? He's operating not on behalf of the American national interest or his idea of the American national interest, but sort of his campaign tactics and his slightly weird desire to exonerate Russia from the the DNC hacks. Uh, And that's the critical difference here. There's political influence in foreign policy all the time. Uh, Not in this sense, there isn't. Um, You know, there's no holding up of foreign aid unless people gin up uh, campaign dirt on their political adversaries. If that was happening all the time, like we would remember. It. One thing you mentioned there, Matt, uh, that, that I want to dig into for a second is something that was surprising about that Mulvaney comment is he is actually not talking about the quid pro quo most of this is based around. I think that, that, that as people think about the impeachment process, they're thinking about Donald Trump wanted Ukraine to investigate Joe Biden's son's role on Burisma. And the particular investigation he's talking about is of a a conspiracy theory around a company called CrowdStrike, around whether it was Ukraine that hacked the DNC in 2016, not Russia, which I think Trump thinks in some abstract way would exonerate him. Um, The idea that he was trying to exonerate himself and then like got himself into this mess is a profound irony, if true. But but he's talking about a a different corruption investigation than I think most people focused on here. Yeah, he seems to have a few different ideas confused together. Right. But so 
One is that he thinks this company CrowdStrike, this is like a like a data company that the DNC used uh, to help do their investigation into who hacked their server. Trump has said many times, including on the call with uh, President Zelensky, that he thinks CrowdStrike's owner is Ukrainian. And that's just not the case. Uh, separately, Trump appears to believe that there is a single physical server, he uses the phrase the server, uh, that the DNC somehow squirreled away and maybe located in Ukraine. Um, it's not just that there is no server in Ukraine. There, there is no server at all. Uh, the DNC has a, a cloud-based email system, as do many of us. Um, there are servers that implement it. But the reason the FBI was not given some physical box is that there there isn't one. Um, so this whole thing is kind of loopy, uh, but Trump appears to believe in it, uh, either genuinely believes in it or at least genuinely wants to maintain the the pretense of believing in it uh, for some reason. There's been a lot of reporting to the effect of you know, different briefers have tried to talk him out of this, uh, but he's really pushed it. Bill Barr went to Ukraine talking about this. He talked about it in his call with Ambassador Zelensky. And Mulvaney seemed to be happy to concede that there was a quid pro quo about this CrowdStrike business, maybe seeking to then exonerate the administration from the Hunter Biden Burisma charges. Something else he said I think is worth pointing out for a second, which is this idea that what Donald Trump is doing here was not related to any conception of or even his conception of the American interest. And what strikes me about the Trump administration is that I think taken generously, their consistently articulated viewpoint is it is. And I think this is a, a common thing for populist leaders around the world. But there is a tendency to combine the interests of the populist leader and the interests of the country such that you have to knock down norms and even laws in order to investigate your corrupt opponents who pose such a threat to the people or to the country's future that you just can't be, you know, dilly-dallying with all these niceties. And the way in which Donald Trump in front of the cameras has gone and said, yes, I do want Ukraine and China to investigate Joe Biden, the way in which Mick Mulvaney came out and said this, we'll talk about Mulvaney's walk back in a second, but there's been a, a kind of warping between one argument, which is we didn't do it, but then the other argument is we did do it and we were right to do it because it's important that we investigate corruption. I think Donald Trump at one point said, that's that's my job. That actually strikes me as in some ways a scarier version of this. It's one thing that they just think they're being cynical and corrupt. Um, it's actually more dangerous for Trump and his administration to adopt that kind of authoritarian mindset in which their interests become the country's interests and everything else should fall before that. Yeah, I mean, there's a kind of like triple switch here, right? One is that only people who support Trump are sort of like the real members of the national community in Trump's vision of it. But then also his leadership of the nation is so important that anything that advances his political agenda is, you know, definitionally serves the national interest. And, you know, it it all has a kind of uh, – resonance, as you say, with a certain, you know, with a style of plebiscitary authoritarianism that we're familiar with from certain foreign countries, you know, where somebody, you win an election once or you put some referendum on the ballot and it's like, now I have unconstrained power. Although what's particularly strange about Trump with all of this is that he has a lot of the mannerisms of a kind of majoritarian uh, authoritarian, but he's never had majority support, right? He's not popular now. He didn't get that many votes in the 2016 election. So it's this sort of incredibly shady and disturbing kind of thing where he is the singular instrument of the will of the people, but he doesn't even need to maintain most of the people's backing to sort of have that role in his own mind. So Mick Mulvaney's comments do not appear to have gone over well at the White House. The president's lawyer, Jay Sekulow, um, released a statement <laughs> saying the president's legal counsel was not involved in acting chief of staff Mick Mulvaney's press briefing, which is a quite remarkable statement for the president's lawyer to, to make. Um, and then Mick Mulvaney released a statement where he said, once again, the media has decided to misconstrue my comments to advance a biased and political witch hunt against President Trump. Let me be clear. There was absolutely no quid pro quo between Ukraine Ukrainian military aid and any investigation into the 2016 election. There is something, to go back to the populist authoritarian point, there is something quite remarkable about watching Mulvaney say one thing on television, say it clearly, tell people to get over it, and then come out a couple hours later and say, 
I didn't say that at all. It's the biased media just telling you I said that. I mean, the cameras were running. There's something so mind-bending about watching this flagrant effort to tell us to not believe what we just saw happen that it actually strikes me as an important kind of moment and tactic. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think people will look back and say that very first Sean Spicer press conference in which he's looking at photos of inaugural crowds and is maintaining that the clearly smaller crowd was bigger. Um, It's not just like a weird thing that happened one day, right? I mean, it's genuinely the signature move of this whole administration's uh, public communication strategy, right? Is it's not – it's not like persuasive lying, right? It's not really an effort to confuse someone who's paying attention with a kind of clever ruse. It's a statement that, you know, facticity and verification are not important to the players, that they're not going to be bound by consistency. Uh, Another thing that happened in the middle of this is Donald Trump Jr. went on Fox News to do interviews in which he denounced the evils of nepotism and spoke very eloquently about how a guy like Hunter Biden has made his whole career uh, out of just being his father's son. And I mean, this is like Donald Trump Jr., leveling this complaint, right? It doesn't it doesn't make any kind of sense. Uh, but they're very willing to operate like totally outside the boundaries of conventional argumentation. So let's talk about Gordon Sondland, who uh, testified at a hearing this week. Gordon Sondland, the ambassador to the European Union, who ended up seemingly being, I don't exactly want to say in charge, but central to the Ukraine plot, despite Ukraine not being in the EU. Reason for that seems to be that the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, Marie uh, Yovanovitch, was recalled because she wasn't being helpful. And that left them Bill Taylor, who is this top-ranking state employee in Kiev and like a career diplomat, and he wasn't going to be helpful. So Sondland, who had donated a million dollars through four LLC companies to Donald Trump's uh, inaugural festivities and had basically bought himself this ambassadorship, was kind of sent in as a fixer working um, alongside uh, Rick Perry, who resigned this week, and Kurt Volker, who was a special representative for Ukraine. And Sondland gave this testimony that was trying, I think, to say that he didn't do anything wrong and that to his knowledge, Donald Trump didn't do anything wrong. And yet in the testimony was unbelievably clear about how much wrongdoing had happened, but he really tried to pin it on Rudy Giuliani. And and I wonder like what you made of that. It, this struck me as a classic like unraveling cover-up kind of thing in which a guy who's clearly at the center of it is no longer denying that the bad things happened. He's just trying to deny that he personally had knowledge of them. You know, it, it strains credibility at a certain point when he says he didn't know that Giuliani is uh, – errand in Ukraine related to Joe and Hunter Biden. I mean, I I knew that because I read about it in a New York Times article. Um, It's one of these things like, can I prove that Ambassador Sondland would have read New York Times stories about his colleagues work in Ukraine, which he was also involved with? Like, of course, I I can't. Um, And that's one reason why, you know, they have to do more rounds of these hearings and sort of get everybody's perspective and maybe ask again about some of this stuff. But it's really different from what you've seen in some other kind of Trump inquiries, right? People are testifying and they are sort of pointing the fingers at each other. And in this case, you know, Sondland, like this is a rich guy. He's sort of he's not that deeply involved in American politics over the years. And I think it's clear, like, he doesn't want to go down over this. So there's a very strange internal structure to the Sondland uh, statement What he's trying to say is that what he and Perry and Volcker were doing is they had the on the up and up view that the U.S. and Ukraine should have much tighter relationships, right? They had a good policy rationale for what they were doing. And they recognized fairly quickly that in order to achieve this good, solid policy outcome – they needed to go through Rudy Giuliani. Mm-hmm. Um, they, 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 he says it was apparent, and I'm quoting now, it was apparent to all of us that the key to changing the president's mind on Ukraine was Mr. Giuliani. And what Sondland wants to say, um, he, he, he talks about having a conversation with President Trump who's in a bad mood, he says, you know, and Trump says there's no quid pro quo. But what he wants to say is that um, Giuliani is sort of operating in a weird rogue foreign policy, rogue not just from from Sondland and the State Department, but rogue from President Trump too. Um, but, but he also says 
Based on the president's direction, we were faced with a choice. We could abandon the goal of a White House meeting for President Zelensky, which appears to be what he was trying to get, which we all believed is crucial to strengthening U.S.-Ukrainian ties and furthering long-held U.S. foreign policy goals in the region. Or we could do as President Trump directed and talk to Mr. Giuliani to address the president's concerns. We chose the latter path. And he seems to be somehow trying to sever this latter path from the president. But it's very clear from his testimony the president ordered him to go through Giuliani and do what Giuliani wanted done. The idea that Trump did all that but didn't know what Giuliani wanted just seems like a very strange argument to try to put forward. Yeah, but I mean, this is kind of like, you know, like mob boss tactics, right? Like Donald Trump is not going to tell anyone to directly put this deal on the table, right? Everything is sort of at a distance, right? If you try to raise with Trump personally, like, what are you doing? He's like, hey, talk to Rudy, talk to Rudy, right? And it does, you know, I don't think it's like plausible exactly to put all this weight just on the shoulders of Rudy Giuliani. Uh, But it is true that, right, like legally speaking, now unless we get Rudy Giuliani testifying under oath, I was ordered to do all this by Donald Trump, uh, what you have is the phrasing that Trump used on that phone call, which, you know, it seems pretty clear to me, but you could imagine people arguing it other ways. Um, and maybe the idea that Rudy Giuliani was just running this rogue op. Um, you know, is that in any way realistic? I, I think no. Uh, but, you know, it's tough. I mean, if Rudy is willing to take the heat, we have a sort of long tradition of fall guys in political scandals. Uh, but Trump himself doesn't seem willing to go there, right? You don't hear Trump saying, oh, this was all Giuliani's fault. Trump is just saying it's fine. So the third story that I think really mattered this week has to do with something else um, Mick Mulvaney said, but something the Trump administration has been trying to do for a while, which I predict is going to add another article to the impeachment charges. Um, which is that the, Nancy Pelosi and the House Democrats have been trying to keep impeachment pretty narrowly focused on Ukraine. But among other things that people want to put in there is Donald Trump's tendency for self-dealing and corruption in office. And they have decided to try to run the G7 summit at a flagging Trump resort in Doral, Florida. Um, and I, I want to play what Mulvaney said. We're going to announce today that we're going to do the 46th G7 summit um, on uh, June 10th through June 12th at the Trump National Doral uh, facility in Miami, Florida. I guess I've been the the chief now for about nine or 10 months, and I always hear it. Whenever we go to Mar-a-Lago, it's a huge branding opportunity. Whenever he plays, uh, you know, at Trump Mar-a-Lago. We play golf at Trump Bedminster. He goes to play golf at Trump up in Sterling. Um, And everybody asks the questions, and not a huge marketing opportunity. I would simply ask you all to to, to consider the possibility that Donald Trump's brand is probably strong enough as it is, and he doesn't need any more help on that. Matt, what did you think of that? I mean... What can you even say, right? I mean, it's brazen, (laughs) out-and-out corruption. And I've been stunned by how much of an underreaction to Trump's hotel frauds that we've had over over the the weeks, over, over the years. As best I can tell, Democrats have decided that this is not an issue they really want to focus on. And so Trump, you know, given an inch, is is taking a mile. You know, two things here. One is, um, for all that Mulvaney said, The Washington Post has reported uh, that Doral's net operating income has declined by almost 70 percent since 2015, um, which is a decline uh, attributed by experts to the Trump brand's toxicity. So what Mulvaney said is saying about the strength of the brand does not actually appear to be true. But the other thing here is that this is actually quite classic impeachable behavior. Like when you go back to those early debates, when you look at what people like Madison are saying, the concern about a chief executive enriching himself off the public purse, like that's a big deal. That is something they'd seen before, right? Corruption is an old thing in in government. And the way in which they are doing this amidst an impeachment scandal it is such a like a like a clear like flagging the cape, like waving the cape in front of the bull that it almost seems like they, they just want to escalate. But I almost feel like it's the opposite of the wagging of a cape, right? It's like this is like a gut check. Like, is anybody in the Republican Party going to hold Donald Trump accountable if he does something unambiguously corrupt right in the open? And the answer is no. Right. That is the answer. And I think it gives them confidence to proceed on the Ukraine stuff. Matt Iglesias, thank you very much. Thank you. Matt ended that on a note of, let's say, constitutional pessimism, which is to say that 
there is no possibility of impeachment and removal because of Republican partisanship may be true. But one way or another, we're going to have an impeachment inquiry in the House um, and we're going to have, it seems very likely, an impeachment trial in the Senate. Mitch McConnell has committed to that. And as that happens, everything that gets discussed is going to be shaped by four words. If you go into the Constitution, you read Article 2, Section 4, it says the president, vice president and all civil officers of the United States shall be removed from office on impeachment for and conviction of treason, bribery or other high crimes and misdemeanors. Everything in this trial will come down to the meaning of the term high crimes and misdemeanors. What did the founders mean? And if any Republicans are going to move, it's going to be because over the course of it, they become convinced that in whatever duty they feel they have to the Constitution and to the founders' intent, that the activities of Donald Trump's administration fit those four words, high crimes and misdemeanors. It isn't treason. It isn't bribery. But it might be high crimes and misdemeanors. So the question becomes, what do high crimes and misdemeanors mean? A lot of people think it's straightforwardly legal, but that's not actually true. Gene Healy is a vice president at the Cato Institute. He's a scholar on executive power. He's written great books on this topic. And he wrote, and I've read a lot of the impeachment literature now, he wrote a fantastic report on this, and I'll put it in the show notes. It's called The Indispensable Remedy, The Broad Scope of the Constitution's Impeachment Power. And what Healy did was he surveyed the history of high crimes and misdemeanors, what it meant in British law, what it meant at the Constitutional Convention, and how it was interpreted through both the early and modern eras in American political life. Gene Healy joins me next. Eurovision is here. This year's contest gets underway this week in Malmö, Sweden, but this year's contest comes with a dose of controversy. I'll give you one guess as to what people are mad about. Yes. Correct. It's that. Organizers of the Eurovision Song Contest say they are assessing whether Israel's entry breaks the rules on political neutrality. I think it's a shame. I think there's no way that, that Israel should be able to participate in Eurovision. Pro-Palestinian protesters are taking to the Swedish streets. More than a thousand Swedish artists, including Robin, have called for an Israel ban. Some European politicians are joining them. Charlie Harding from Switched On Pop joins us this week on Today Explained to help us figure out if Europe can sing its way out of this situation. Gene Healy, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on. So let's begin with the term high crimes and misdemeanors. Uh, before it gets into the Constitution, where does it come from? Well, it it's, uh, comes from British practice. Uh, British impeachments start in the 14th century. The term high crimes from misdemeanors has a 100, 150-year history as a term in British impeachments before the uh, framers ever get down to... Uh, putting it into the uh, U.S. Constitution. So it, it had a history at the, at the time of the framing. It's sort of a linguistic anachronism, and you can, you can sort of understand why people think impeachment, that's about crime, right? Because crimes and misdemeanors seems to speak in the language of the criminal law, even though it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. It sounds like grave felonies and also lesser offenses for up to a year in jail. But it really didn't have that kind of criminal law connotation. Misdemeanors was not understood in the contemporary criminal law sense of, uh, you know, an offense that can land you up to a year in jail. It meant more like a corrupt behavior in a position of trust. Yeah, you have this definition from Webster's American Dictionary in 1828 that has misdemeanors meaning ill behavior, evil conduct, fault, and mismanagement. Yeah, it's also, I've heard, malversation in office, which is a term we don't use much anymore. But no, it, it is distinctly not supposed to be a criminal law term. That sort of comes later. If you were writing out for like a like a ninth grade civics class, what you think high crimes and misdemeanors means translated into more contemporary language, how would you say it? How would you define it? I would say uh, serious misconduct that demonstrates unfitness for high office or unfitness to wield power. There are a couple of formulations that people have tried that are... Uh, is a conservative legal scholar, uh, John McGinnis, who tries, says, 
objective misconduct that seriously undermines an official's fitness for office, uh, judged by the risks to the republic. Uh, it's that sort of thing. I mean, it wouldn't be the contemporary understanding of high crimes and misdemeanors, which you know, I think people translate into grievous criminal abuses of power. Uh, that's certainly the core of impeachment, but it's not everything that is impeachable. But shorthand, uh, high crimes and misdemeanors are serious misconduct that demonstrates uh, an official's unfitness to hold high office or to wield power. Let's get into the history of how it actually gets into the Constitution. Do you want to walk through a bit what the constitutional debate over what offenses would count towards impeachment was, like how we ended up with the formulation we have now? Well, the you know impeachment gets a, a fair amount of debate a couple of times through the uh, the Philadelphia Convention in 1787. First, there's a sort of minority motion that impeachment should not be available against the president at all. That's uh, Governor Morris and, a, and another Charles Pinckney, and uh, they practically get shouted down by everybody else: uh, Mason, Madison, Ben Franklin, Randolph, and on and on. And uh, Governor Morris actually concedes that. Uh, Okay, I guess this really is necessary. The term high crimes and misdemeanors makes it in a month and a half or so later uh, in September. They played with different formulations of how to describe impeachable offenses, uh, neglect of duty, malversation, corruption. And it gets narrowed in committee uh, in September to treason and bribery. And there's this famous exchange between Mason and Madison where Mason says, you know, treason and bribery, and he talks about this impeachment trial that's going on in England at the time of Warren Hastings. And he says, Hastings wasn't guilty of treason. This needs to be broader. He suggests maladministration. Madison objects, says uh, that's too broad. It'd be like equivalent to, to serving at the pleasure of the Senate. And then Mason swaps it out for high crimes and misdemeanors, this uh, term of art from British practice, and it passes. And that's how we end up with the language that we have today. That exchange is often used to say that, you know, this is a real narrowing of the scope of impeachable offenses. But the fact is, high crimes and misdemeanors was understood, understood by Mason, understood by anyone with familiarity with uh, British impeachments in the ratifying conventions, the, this was understood to be pretty broad. It could even include negligence and incapacity, not just what we typically think of now as, uh, you know, the Nixonian abuse of power offenses. But so I find this this moment in the Constitutional Convention just incredibly frustrating <laughs> because when you get into debates about impeachment and what do high crimes and misdemeanors mean, you will often end up in this argument about maladministration. So maladministration just basically means doing a poor job being the administrator. And people note that that was an option and they rejected it. But then they move to high crimes and misdemeanors. And uh, as you note in your paper, um, there's a law book they're all using, Blackstone's Commentaries on the Laws of England. Um, Madison says, like, this book is in every man's hand at the uh -huh. convention. And it uses maladministration as a first example of a high misdemeanor. Right. And so there's this way in which they move from a reasonably vague term to another reasonably vague term that seems to be, at least at times, inclusive of the first one. And so people often want to say that in moving from maladministration to high crimes and misdemeanors, we move from something that could have just been impeachment for poor performance to impeachment to a much more severe abuse of the public trust. And yet it seems to convey the idea that or, or include the idea in contemporary usage that poor performance could be an abuse of the public trust. So in your view, like what did they think they were doing in making that move? Like what was the difference to Madison? I guess he thought it narrowed it somewhat that high crimes and misdemeanors would include not just simple negligence, but gross negligence, uh, something outrageous. Uh, it's clear Madison thinks it's narrowed somewhat, but he still complains uh, shortly after about uh, how broad high crimes and misdemeanors is as a description of what you can be impeached for. I think people put too much weight on this exchange because Madison's notes were secret for like the next 50 years. They were never supposed to be the guide to the uh, inner understandings of the framers. You know, what, what the ratifying conventions had in front of them was the text, not Madison's notes. And, you know, high crimes and misdemeanors was understood 
to include certain forms of maladministration and gross negligence. So I think that what that's what matters. And, you know, if it does matter, we're not just trying to channel James Madison, but Madison pretty shortly afterwards in the first Congress says that the president can be impeached for maladministration. They're debating uh, what authority the president has to remove officers in the first Congress. And somebody says, well, what if, you know, if we give him the power to remove the secretary of state for whatever reason he wants, what if he starts getting rid of good people? And Madison says, well, he could be impeached and removed for an act of maladministration like that. So it would also be a, a strange result, right? If you have, uh, you know, you can remove the president if he's a crook, if he abuses power, but not if uh, he is negligent to the point of endangering the public trust and, and the body politic. I want to go into how impeachment is used in those early years of the republic. But I want to hold on this ambiguity for one second because I think it's important to, to understanding this debate. High crimes and misdemeanors seems technical, very much isn't, is interpreted in many different ways, even by the founders in the immediate aftermath of the Constitutional Convention. And so it creates this, I think, flux in how we understand impeachment today. So Gerald Ford famously says that impeachable offense is whatever a majority of the House considers it to be at a given point in history. I think most people want to say that's not true. Um, and to some degree, it shouldn't be true because the impeachable defense does have some definition. But it seems to me that in American history, we're constantly groping for some kind of standard we can rely on. So it doesn't come down to our judgment in the moment influenced by political power and the jockeying for political position. And yet there was no easy standard given. Like the, the, there's no independent tribunal handed it. There's no pure definition. And so you're constantly in a fight over whether or not the judgment of whether or not something is a high crime misdemeanor is just the kind of pure power judgment Gerald Ford is pointing to there, or it is somehow constitutionally and founder and framer blessed in the way that people feel would give heft to something as grave as impeachment. Well, I, th I think people find it really frustrating, right? Because uh, figuring out what the original understanding of high crimes and misdemeanors is leaves you with a lot more gray areas than black and white. I, I think Gerald Ford is wrong in the sense that, you know, if the House decided to impeach and the Senate to remove Donald Trump for having a bad comb over uh, or scotch taping the back of his tie, it is probably the case that the Supreme Court would not overturn uh, an impeachment and removal on those grounds, but it wouldn't make having a bad comb over a, a, a high crime and misdemeanor. So, you know, the text doesn't say you can remove the president whenever you get a majority of the House and two thirds of the Senate. But, you know, impeachment is part law and part politics. What the constitutional law part of it can answer is, is this a potentially impeachable offense? Is this the sort of gross negligence, abuse of power, corruption in office that is in the neighborhood of the original understanding of high crimes and misdemeanors. It can't tell you whether for any particular high crime and misdemeanor that impeachment and removal is a good idea. That part is political and one hopes is political in the more statesmanlike sense than pure partisan politics. But it turns out uh, for most people to be really difficult to abstract themselves or put themselves behind a veil of ignorance because we always know what particular president is in the crosshairs. It turns out to be really hard for people to uh, hew to any particular standard that doesn't shift from one president to another. So in the early years of the Republic, when we're closest to the ratification of the Constitution, and so you're dealing with the original understandings to the extent we can, what gets considered an impeachable offense? You know, people talk about impeachment precedent, and it seems to me that these early cases, there were three impeachments in about uh, roughly 15 years after ratification. It seems to me these early precedents, which are contemporaneous with the generation that ratified the Constitution, they're what you should really look to to see what the original understanding and, you know, how this term was understood and applied. Starting 1797, you have one senator and two federal judges that are impeached. These are the first three impeachment cases. And of the, these three cases, only one of the three parties did anything that's even remote, could even remotely be called a crime. And the first federal official that's actually uh, impeached and removed from office is uh, a federal judge. This happened in 1804, federal judge John Pickering. And his offense is essentially 
showing up to work drunk and ranting like a maniac from the bench. Not a crime, uh, but he's removed for, uh, I think it, the phrase was, high misdemeanors disgraceful to his own character as a judge. Then you have, uh, you have also a Supreme Court justice who's impeached but not removed, Justice Samuel Chase. His main offense is partisan bias from the, the bench. A lot of it centers around a uh, grand jury instruction that he gave that was a, really a, a federalist rant. This uh, is viewed in the history of impeachment as you know, the Jeffersonians overreaching. Wouldn't it be terrible uh, if you were removed for something like this? And while I think we want to be careful with judicial impeachments, imagine Justice Kavanaugh ranting from the bench about the deep state or you know, going out on the campaign trail for Donald Trump. Part of the reason these norms exist is because of the Chase impeachment. Again, what I think these three cases show is you're not looking at criminal offenses. And in, for the most part, you're not even looking at abuse of power. In the, the two judicial cases, it's really conduct incompatible with the uh, proper purpose of the office and something that undermines competence in the person's ability to, to, to hold this high trust. Yeah, I was struck by this Congressional Research Service report in 2015, which says that over the entirety of our constitutional history, fewer than a third of the impeachments approved by the House have specifically invoked a criminal statute or used the term crime. Like that to me really puts to rest the idea that this is primarily about what we would legally consider crimes. But you talk a lot about a 1974 report from the House Judiciary Committee um, about the grounds for presidential impeachment. And they say that when they looked at this, and they did a pretty comprehensive job of it, that it really always fell into one of three categories. It was an abuse of power. It was using one's post for personal gain. And it was behaving in a manner grossly incompatible with the proper function and purpose of the office. And I have to say that I read that paragraph in the report and I felt that seems pretty spot on. <laughs> like that seems pretty descriptive of what we're looking at. Yeah, I think there is a, a weird aspect to the impeachment debate. You know, there's been a lot of impeachment talk starting uh, Trump's election, if not before. It is weird that we're driven often, uh, although probably not uh, in the most recent uh case with the uh, Ukraine phone call, but we're usually driven into these hyper-legal discussions of, uh, you know, the uh, statutory basis for obstruction of justice in, in federal law, or did the president violate campaign finance law by arranging for a payoff of a, an ex-mistress? Um, this is not really what the early impeachments are about, and it's not really what they're supposed to be about. An impeachment debate about Donald Trump that really was consistent with the original understanding of this clause would be focused more on you know his public conduct, uh, his uh, lack of impulse control, his uh, inability to act like a grown-up in a grown-up's job, the fact that he makes people nervous that he's so close to the nuclear launch codes. A lot of it would not be centered around uh, finding a smoking gun or a stained dress. It would be about his Twitter feed uh, and how he talks at press conferences. So I, I think we've really moved towards, I call it the overcriminalization of impeachment, where contemporary impeachment debates are often you know, left to lawyers and uh, you have sort of expert witnesses on what a reasonable prosecutor would do. That's not the inquiry at all. And in fact, the House... Judiciary Committee, one example of this would be even when you when the president is impeached for something that involves a crime, for example, the House Judiciary Committee and obstruction of justice, the article of on, on obstruction of justice that passed against Richard Nixon, it made clear in the report that it wasn't a matter of a crime. That was different. This was a abuse of his oath of office and his oath to ensure that the laws were faithfully executed, not whether he technically violated a federal criminal statute. There's another thing in that 1974 report that I found helpful, which is this idea of substantialness. Do you want to talk a bit about that? Yeah. So I, this gets a little bit to the idea that uh, in, impeachment is a mixed operation of law and politics, and uh, the con law can sort of answer some of the basic questions, uh, resolve you know, some things into black and white, but there's a huge gray area. 
for example, constitutional analysis can tell you whether obstruction of justice is a, an impeachable offense, and it clearly is. Uh, you know, it's what we have the most presidential precedent for, for one thing. What it can't tell you is whether any particular case of obstruction of justice uh, is substantial enough uh, if it merits uh, this remedy. For that, you don't need legal analysis at all. Uh, so in a, in a contemporary debate, legal analysis can tell you using the powers of your office to screw your political enemies, uh, to borrow the phrase from John Dean, is an impeachable offense. It can't answer questions like, well, what if we're only 12 months away from the next presidential election and there may be another means of uh, dealing with this problem? That's not a question the law can answer. And substantiality, I, I, that sort of analysis is sort of why people think it collapses all into politics because you do see people line up behind their, uh, you know, whichever shirts and skins, red team, blue team. But that, that in itself is nothing new. I mean, Hamilton predicted that right from the beginning. But I, I understand why it's frustrating that, uh, you know, that there aren't a lot of black and white answers. This isn't like figuring out what commerce among the states, interstate commerce meant in 1789. Uh, this leads to a lot more gray areas. But it, in another way, I don't see how it could be any other way. For the same reason, the debates over the Ninth Amendment, you could never enumerate all the rights of man. You could never enumerate the human imagination isn't broad enough to figure out uh, every abuse of public office that people will be capable of. So you could never write an impeachment code that, that covered all the bases. So we are inescapably thrown into uh, politics. The reason I bring this up is that I think it gets to a bigger point that you've been making that, that I make sometimes and that I think is important to dredge out into the open of the impeachment debate. There is a background question of how horrible you think impeachment is as a remedy. And if you think impeachment is a really horrible remedy, right, that it's a stain on the country, that it is divisive in a way that will tear us apart, that it is something to be avoided almost at all costs, then you get into these questions of trying to set the bar for what might count really, 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 really high. And something that I think makes you and gives you and me slightly a heterodox view on this is I think we both believe that impeachment should be a much more normalized power. That the fact that no president has ever been impeached and removed from office in American history, though you can argue about that Nixon probably would have been eventually if he hadn't resigned, suggests maybe we're using impeachment a little bit too seldomly. And that the way in which we treat uh, – you, you say this explicitly in your piece. I've said it in, in other pieces – that the way we treat the president is to for some reason give the person with the most power to do harm the most job security of anybody in the country. Right. It's like the one job in the United States where you have to commit a felony to uh, be removed. And it's also the one job where you get nuclear weapons. Uh, yeah, uh, you pointed all this out in uh, your piece on the case for normalizing impeachment a couple of years ago. Yeah, I, And as you say in that piece, I, I think we should look uh, upon this, you know, not as a regicide, uh, you know, a deep wounding of the national fabric, but more like putting somebody out of a job. We seem to be very comfortable, you know, compared to other Western democracies. Uh, we're, we're probably more comfortable than, than most countries with the idea of firing people. Uh, you know, it's employment at will for, for most of us, you know, unless you're in a protect, some sort of protected category. If you're a CEO, uh, you might have an employment contract, but that contract is going to often include things like moral turpitude and, um, you know, negligent performance. Uh, but as you go up the the ladder and get to the president, the most important job in America, supposedly, and uh, the hardest one to remove someone in midterm, it, it seems to me that that's crazy. We should look at this more as getting rid of uh, someone who's not performing or someone who is can do a lot of damage. Uh, and uh, we shouldn't be so angsty about it. It strikes me as really bizarre that you know, we're having the, this conversation, the, the president's, uh, the White House counsel put out this thing about how there needs to be even more due process, even at the, the House level in an impeachment to protect the president. Meanwhile, Donald Trump is a guy whose claim to fame, you know, the thing that made him nationally famous, probably more than anything else, was a television show where his signature line was, you're fired. 
uh, you know, why are we so uncomfortable with the idea that you can fire a non-performing or abusive chief executive uh, before his official term is up. This seems to me to be something where if you looked at our system from the outside, you would say a genius of our political system is that we have made it such that impeachment does not change the party in power. It just changes the person. So if it is a decision between left and right, between Democrat and Republican, that is such a big jump that you can understand mm -hmm. why a party would protect their president at all costs because you don't want to sacrifice everything that having a co-partisan in power would give you even if that person has committed a grave abuse. But we don't do it that way. It would be in this case Mike Pence um, who mm -hmm. would come into power and under Bill Clinton, it would have been Al Gore. And you can imagine parties looking at this as – you know, the president serves at least partly at the pleasure of the congressional board of directors. And part of the 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 genius of the system is there's always somebody waiting there to step in, right? So that we actually have the capacity to hold people to account for performance. But we don't look at it like that. It's treated as a very binary yes or no, left or right, like are they going to win or are we going to win approach. And I'm curious, going back to those early debates and going back to you know Federal 65, where Hamilton speaks a lot about the problem of party and how the Senate is going to be above it. I'm curious how you think the founders would look at the impeachment power as it plays out now in this era when parties cooperate across branches as opposed to branches compete with each other uh, for preeminence. Well, they didn't turn out to be oracles on <laughs> on everything. Uh, you know, the rise of political parties you know, happened faster than, than they thought it would. And uh, some of the early impeachments, uh, you know, the particularly uh, when Jefferson is president, uh, they're highly partisan. Uh, you know, partisan impeachments are sort of with us from the beginning. You know, Hamilton's prediction turns out to be, uh, you know, more, more right than he could have known the further, the further on we go. I think they would have been surprised at how few presidential impeachments there have been because they, in general, were not that angsty about presidential impeachments. Nobody wanted them to be done as frequently as, say, we do government shutdowns today. But you know, no one thought it was this absolutely fraught undertaking. I think they'd be surprised at how rarely we've done it. Um, but in part, that's it's not just because they didn't. Uh, predict uh, political parties arising in quite the way they did and when they did. It's also because they didn't really give a lot of thought to the supermajority requirement uh, in the Senate. And that combined with uh, political parties and partisanship has made removing a president in a Senate trial virtually impossible. I mean, the, uh, the Republicans couldn't do it in the Andrew Johnson impeachment despite the fact that they had over 80% uh, of the uh, Senate majority. In part, uh, this is because you know, they, they didn't see clearly uh, what, the, what the implications of the machinery they adopted would be. Gene Healy, thank you very much. Thank you. Founders thought that impeachment was the indispensable remedy, that we needed it as a possibility to constrain the behavior of the executive, to remove them if needed, but to constrain them because it would have the fear of removal. Uh, what, what Gene said at the end of that interview is that the way impeachment is constructed, and particularly given the way it interacts with party politics and party incentives now, it may be an indispensable remedy, but also an impossible one. I want to hold in that concern for a minute. Something that keeps me up about this story is that as a scheme, it came so close to working. Uh, if you read the conversation call record between Donald Trump and the president of Ukraine, you can see the president of Ukraine repeatedly agree with Trump. If Donald Trump was simply a little better at this, if he were a little more discreet, if he had just left this up to his underlings, it's so easy to imagine a world, a day where we woke up and on the front page of the New York Times, a story headlined by Ken Vogel would say, Ukraine opens investigation into Hunter Biden, Joe Biden's son. And maybe that day would have come uh, six, eight, ten months from now when Joe Biden was the nominee for the Democratic Party for president. And maybe that would have been enough in a close race to toss it to Donald Trump. Donald Trump had the power in this office to ask a lot of Ukraine, and he did, uh, from all we know. And 
it would not have been hard uh, if they were a little bit more strategic, if the people executing this were a little bit savvier, if Donald Trump had not made some of these demands so explicitly on calls with so many other people listening in for the scheme to work. If this goes unpunished, if this becomes cleared, right? Well, he was just investigating corruption. And that's what Donald Trump thought the national interest was. Then the message we are sending to every president who comes after Donald Trump isn't don't do this. It's do it better. It isn't that this kind of behavior, this kind of activity is outside the boundaries of American politics, is outside what both Republicans and Democrats are going to permit because they know that a president could use it against them, right? Because behind the veil of political ignorance, they know they will not hold the White House at some point. Somebody else will. And that if this kind of behavior is okay, that could be it for them. If this is protected, insulated from consequence, if impeachment has become so hard to use that Republicans, assuming everything we know, continues to be proven true, if it becomes so hard to use that even this behavior cannot be punished, well, then what we are, we are creating a new capacity in American politics. We're creating a new tactic in American elections in a way that I, I think should make us afraid. High crimes and misdemeanors means fundamentally abuse of public office. It means abuse of power. And there is no more important abuse of power that you can have in political life than the abuse of power to keep and maintain power. Because if we are to be a democracy, if we're to be a country that actually has competitive real elections and accountability, then power has to be vulnerable. If power is just allowed to amass a fortress unto itself, if power can be used to make it so nobody can challenge power, well, then power becomes unaccountable. And then this whole constitutional architecture we've set up, this whole theory that we built the country that was able to stay away from the mistakes of the past collapses in on itself. I'm Ezra Klein. This is Impeachment Explained. Impeachment Explained is hosted by me. It is produced and edited by Jeffrey Geld. Researcher is Roger Karma. Um, engineers are Malachi Brodus and Jeremy Dalmas. Theme music composed by John Natchez. I also want to thank Liz Nelson. We will be in your feeds every Saturday. I hope you enjoy this. I hope you subscribe. Um, and during the week, you should be checking in with Today Explained, who's doing an amazing job on this story. You can subscribe to that podcast wherever you're subscribing to this one. Impeachment Explained is a production of the Vox Media Podcast Network. See you next Saturday.